Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm best-selling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacy Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of the paleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Woohoo! Listeners, welcome back. Episode 335, I think. <laughs> I no, we're good. We're good. It's totally 335. And I know. I double checked. We are going to cover, wait for it, wait for it, how many vegetables, part three. <laughs> Let me just tell you, this is one of our most popular <laughs> topics on the show. We had so many questions following up the how many vegetables show that we had to make it a how many vegetables part two show. And then we got even more questions that we just kind of didn't do anything with for a while. Cause we talked about <laughs> vegetables a lot and we didn't want to intimidate you. And so now we're back cause it's 2019 and we're going to hit you with some more veggie talk. I want to say there's at least three other podcasts that were follow-up questions to how many vegetables <laughs> totally. part one and part two that just didn't get the, the title, how many vegetables, because they were off this like other tangent of like, but what about like, I think the carnivore diet show was a follow-up. I think we did one on carbon tolerance, which was a follow-up. Like, I think we have like though those podcasts led to so many great questions. Uh, so this one will either be, that's it. Wrapped up. We're done. No more questions. Or it'll be opening up another can of worms. We'll see. But I am excited about the show because I get the question so often what I think about smoothies and juicing and all of that kind of stuff. And I am going to love putting a formality to that. Um, but also because I am a big proponent of souping and I introduced the idea in 2018. And as you pointed out, it subsequently became a trending topic. No yeah. coincidence at all. And no you credit. didn't get credit for that. It's okay. I, I know in my heart that it was totally yeah. where it came from. For sure. Also for the record, more vegetables than a vegetarian hashtag is a hundred percent me as well. Yeah. Um, but anyway, not that not that I'm keeping track. Um, <laughs> but I started the idea of souping in 2018 because I had this question so often about juicing. And I was like, why don't you just eat the fiber? Like, Why do you have a problem with the fiber? And you can just add some nutrient-dense healing bone broth. And that now you've got like your own version of juice and it's full meal. Like it's good for you. Um, so I think we've, we've got some questions on this topic that will be good to explore a little bit. And given that it's January and so many people are focused on healthier habits, I myself am focused on prioritizing getting soup slash broth into my body every day is a good reset coming out of the holidays to remind my body how good soup feels. Um, this is a good topic for me as well. So I'm excited we're covering it. Yeah. So I feel like before we dive in, we should actually like give anybody who's sort of like a relatively new listener who has made the very wise choice of not binge listening to every single episode <laughs> we've ever done. Like, That's I true. We should reward people's people. good life choices. I know. So I always, I mean, I love when you guys tell us that you like are binge listening to every single episode we've ever done, but it also like, I, I always, it makes me feel weird. So I just like, Holy smokes, that's a lot of Stacey and I talking that you're listening to right now. Um, but uh, <laughs> but thank you. It's it's also uh, a huge honor that that people do that. But uh, we talked about vegetables in our part one, How Many Vegetables show, which was episode 281. You actually talked more about souping in the following episode in 282. And then we did How Many Vegetables part two in 286. It's actually been a while since we've... Uh, really come back to this topic, but it felt like a really important time, sort of like New Year's-y, resolution-y time to come back to this topic. And I'm afraid we have been holding on to Christy's question for a 
year. Dear Christy, I hope you aren't holding your breath. (laughs) We thank you so much for submitting your question. And we try to get to all of the questions and we, we love them. But of course, we can't get to everything timely, especially. But we're back and we appreciate the question. Yeah, That's what I feel really bad say. about holding on to this question for a year before. And it's literally been like in, a, you know, my notes in an outline for that whole time. But it, it's, uh, I'm sorry, Christy. It's an excellent question. And we're getting to If we're going to say sorry to Christy, though, then there's like, how many there's other people do we need to apologize to right like now? 90%. The Canadian in you is creating <laughs> quite a can of worms for us here. Uh, I shouldn't have said anything. I should have just said, Christy asked a great question, and then nobody would never know. And now you're saying the word should. Oh, no. (laughs) Time to give up. Time to give up. Time to read Christy's question. That's it. Christy says, thank you both for your podcast. I look forward to it every week, and it has become a huge inspiration to try to eat more nutrient-dense diet, exercise, and move more, and in general, take better care of myself. I've been drinking smoothies in the new year as a way to up my vegetable content. I know they are not typically recommended, but mine tend to be about 90% leafy greens, spinach, kale, or a blend, a small handful of frozen mango, a pinch of salt, and water. I recognize that foods that you drink tend not to be as satisfying as ones that are chewed, and although I don't always succeed, I try to have a combination of protein and fat on the side to make it a complete meal. I was curious about what your thoughts were about this type of smoothie, much more vegetable than fruit, as a way to increase my vegetable intake. I was curious about this, especially in the context of Sarah's post about souping. If blended soups tend to help keep one satiated longer, would a smoothie and a combination of fat and protein, or adding protein powder and or a fat to my smoothies, make them a healthier option for me? How would this differ from a traditional soup? If I replaced the salt and water with a broth to make it more nutrient-dense and soup-like, maybe without the mango, would that have an impact? Any recommendations or thoughts you have would be greatly appreciated. Thank you both for all you do. I'm just going to say that Christy is 100% on the right track. And so I'm confident that she survived this last year without us. <laughs> I, I also, um, I think, you know, one of the things, I, I don't like juicing, right? So let's, let's just take a step backwards. When you juice, you are removing most of the fiber. And so what you actually do is you're turning, even if it's purely vegetables, you're turning all of the carbohydrates in those vegetables into rapidly absorbed carbohydrates. So it has a really, really fast glycemic response. So you're basically making it a vegetable-flavored sugar water, and you're losing a lot of the nutrients that are bound to the fibrous matrix. So you're actually especially losing out on a lot of the minerals in those vegetables. You're getting a lot of the water-soluble vitamins, but you're then the, the I think one of the... I mean, there's two main things in vegetables that I think are like really, really special that make the the strongest argument for why we need to be eating a lot of them. There's vitamins and minerals, sure, but antioxidant phytochemicals, hugely important, and our best dietary source tends to be vegetables and fruit. Also, some things like green and black tea are also very high in phytochemicals, right? There's some other things, a high-quality olive oil, chocolate. There's some other things, but fruits and vegetables are a really important contribution of antioxidant phytochemicals to our diet. And fiber. Fiber is so phenomenally important for our gut microbiome, which is then fundamental for our entire health. And the fiber from vegetables and fruit feeds a healthier gut microbiome than the fiber from, say, grains or legumes. And um, we we see over and over and over again that high vegetable intake is, like, it's not just the number one thing that, like, different, um, like, people who are proponents of different diets can actually agree on. It's, It's absolutely uniform in the scientific literature that high vegetable consumption decreases risk of disease and improves health. And so, Whatever tricks lead to increased whole vegetable consumption, by that I mean, it doesn't matter to me if it's in a soup, if it's roasted, if it's raw, or if it's in a smoothie, but as long as we're not filtering out the fiber and half of the nutrients in it, like you do in a green juice, generally I think that's great. And certainly I'm going to get into some of the nuance about why a soup might be better than a smoothie or why a whole vegetable might be better 
and when something like a super smoothie might actually be a better choice than a whole vegetable. Like there's some really interesting nuance to talk about here. But the bottom line is whatever makes it easier to get those vegetable servings in is awesome. Are we are just going to drop the mic there? Do we need to continue? We don't. It could be a short show this week, right? So I, I think one of the things that I would like to talk about um, as we get into the you know, benefits of, of souping and smoothies is the idea that you can have both. So one of the things that I want to point out that Christy suggested on our blog, we have a breakfast broth smoothie recipe from Mm. the bare bones broth cookbook. And we got this as part of like a recipe release we posted on the blog and if you are trying to transition into more broth, this would be a good one to try. Um, it is whole vegetables, not juice of vegetables. So you're getting those things that you just talked about, Sarah. And then you're also getting a benefit of broth. And so this is carrot juice, orange juice, uh, beef bone broth, turmeric, lemon, and ice. Um, all things that independently are good for you. But also there's not, as Christy said, a lot of protein or fat here. And so her, this idea that she has of eating something on the side is how, when I would have, for example, a smoothie with your, um, collagen veggie blend, which is usually what I have when I'm in a pinch. Um, I'll try to have something else on the side as well. Um, paleo angel, um, Power balls are mm-hmm. one of the things that I also keep around because they've got a good amount of um, fat in them from the coconut. And then there's also more collagen protein in there as well. So there's a whole bunch of things that that you can do. And so this idea of just souping or smoothies or whatever is not a static concept. So I just want to applaud Christy for thinking outside the box, although the box exists somewhere already like it's not it's not a common box i don't think and so (laughs) good job passing that box around so we can all partake kind of thing um but yeah i know you're gonna you're gonna talk about the some of the benefits of soup and fiber and all that kind of good stuff Mm -hmm. right you got some science for us i do i do i wanted to start a bit because christy mentioned my my souping post which i wrote actually after we recorded Uh, that podcast, episode 282, where you talked a lot about souping. And I had, um, I I definitely mentioned some science on souping in that at that point, because I had been writing about it for Paleo Principles. But I did a little bit more research afterwards, because I found the concept really interesting. So it, it's, it's interesting, because there's a lot of research showing that per calorie, any liquid calories are less satiating. So basically they don't fill us up as much and we're hungrier sooner. And that doesn't matter if it's carbohydrates, if it's fat, if it's protein, or if it's a mix. So there's all of the this research showing that if you do a smoothie, it is not as filling as if you ate all of the ingredients that went into that smoothie independently. So that, I mean, to me, that's ne- not necessarily a huge argument against smoothies. Um, for some people who are trying to gain weight, it actually is a really good argument for smoothies because it means you can pack in a lot of calories in a less satiating way. For somebody who's looking to lose weight, you still might use that smoothie to say up the vegetable content, but just need to be aware of this whole extra side of it. Of it does kind of change how you digest the those you know nutrients and and it does change the hunger signals a little bit but what's interesting is soup appears to be an exception so uh they're still right still liquid calories uh studies that have looked at pureed soups for example have shown that they make us feel fuller longer than if we ate all of the components separately so if you had your cup of broth and your little bowl of like chicken pieces and vegetable pieces if you have it as a soup. Um, and even like a smooth soup is the best. So a like pureed, fully pureed soup would keep us fullest, the longest, a chunky soup, like a chicken vegetable in a broth type soup would be second. And then like the third would be the solid meal of all the uh, individual ingredients. 
So a soup compared to a smoothie, which you wouldn't think is that different, even a smoothie with, you know, protein powder and some, you know, some kind of almond butter, whatever fat source, even if the macronutrients look the same and the calories look the same, they have the opposite effect. So soup appears to uh, digest slower, make us feel longer. Um, it does, it is absorbed quickly. So we do have a higher glycemic response, but that's actually causes a release of what are called satiety hormones. So hormones that tell our body that we're full. So it ends up having this appetite suppressing effect. And for some reason, smoothies, we still have that uh, faster nutrient absorption because of how small, right? We were basically blending it up to very small particles, probably smaller than we would ever have bothered to chew all of those ingredients, and smoothies don't. And I can only think it has something to do with temperature and that there's something about the signal of eating the hot liquid mm. calories versus the cold. But there has not been a study that has taken the same puree and served it cold versus hot and looked to see how that impacts satiety that, you know or what digestion. That's fascinating because I really don't like gazpacho. Mm. That is really interesting because you could put all the same ingredients in a hot yep. soup yeah. or like a vichyssoise. Like I would far rather have potato leek soup yeah. as opposed to vichyssoise, which is the cold version of it. I right? cannot stand cold soup. Like it's not, yeah. so, I, you know, just, I have just, there's so many soap boxes just exploding out of my head right now. So I'm just going <laughs> to leave it at, soup I don't like, to be cold. I don't like cold soup. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you're just validating. Seinfeld references coming exactly. up. Exactly. You're just validating yeah, so, what it feels. I mean, that is my, that is my hypothesis based on the research that I've seen. There's quite a lot of research on smoothies, a, not as much on soups, but there's still, you know, multiple studies to look at. And I have not yet seen that you know, the study that would finally answer the question of why soups are different, does it have to do with temperature? But I can only think that it must, because what else is different? <laughs> like, you can make a smoothie with the exact same macronutrients as that pureed soup. The only other difference then is is the temperature. So, you know, that that to me is interesting. I don't think that there's uh, it would make the argument for if you are looking to reduce calories, um, going towards soups is because they're more satiating would be a really good trick to reducing your caloric intake in a non-painful way because they would be more filling. So there's some interesting stuff there. If you are looking to gain weight, uh, choosing smoothies as meals, they're less filling. So, you know, there's a trick to like increasing your calories. But it doesn't mean that the person who's looking to gain weight can't have soup or vice versa, right? Yeah. And the other thing is I wasn't looking to gain weight, but I was looking to gain muscle when I was lifting a lot. And so you can time that calorie consumption and the mm -hmm. kind of macronutrients that you're consuming around your lifts with smoothies. Like I get that that's a thing that people would do, but you know, my, my sister who's going to hear this cause I'm going to refer her to the show cause she just asked me this question this weekend. Um, was asking me about juicing. And I'm like, but why? Like, I just, I, I guess I just don't know why one would juice. And she says that she gets really tired if she eats like a meal at the office that she feels sluggish. And I think what must be happening for a lot of people is it's just not the right food for them at the right time. Right. And just like a smoothie could be a great uh, post-workout option for you to, gain muscle or if you're trying to, you know, gain weight, like Sarah said, at, you know, different kind, different times. I think that, you know, if you're sitting at an office job for eight hours, the kind of food that you need for energy sustainment is different than if mm -hmm. you're, you know, active or whatever during the day, right? So for me, I tend to eat a lot of soups and salads at the office and I, I don't find myself getting sluggish. I'm eating carbs in the form of vegetables, but I'm not eating like, you know, a, a mass amount of food quantity or something like that. Like if I go and it, if the office gets yeah. bunless burgers from five guys and I eat fries, I feel that, you know what I mean? Like it's, yes. it's, it's a feel. And so I, I think that it's a matter of listening to your body's cues to tell you like what some of those energy references that you're making to smoothies it 
versus juices versus soups versus a meal might be the right timing for you. And we don't really talk about that a lot because I do, we've, we've talked about carbs in the evening, but I, I think it's important to think about like the energy output you're having and the kind of energy consumption you're you're making at the same time mm-hmm. right like there has to be a, a one for one or else you're going to have an excess um which leads to not just weight gain but like you're not feeling good you know right. so this is going to go off on a tangent um but i think we, i think this is an important tangent to follow um not least of which because your sister's now listening um, but I think there, hey, what's up, Abby? <laughs> right. Um, so there's a couple of other things that could be going on. So one is that she could be just eating too heavy of a meal for a sedentary part of the day, which is exactly what you just described. Um, the other one is that, um, depending on her adrenal status and her stress levels, um, if her adrenals are already over firing at that time of the day, whenever you eat, you're, you actually have a cortisol release. And so you can feel quite fatigued from your cortisol going too high. And your cortisol would be released a little bit higher after a, a large meal or after a higher carbohydrate meal, which is why something like a more you know vegetable rich meal would not have the same type of fatiguing effect. Um, you can end up fatigued if you have some kind of de- like deficiencies in stomach acid, if your gallbladder is not working super well. So if you're not digesting your food well, that can translate to sort of a sense of fatigue. So sometimes taking some kind of digestive enzyme support can really help. Or again, choosing a food like soup, which is a lot easier to digest because uh, cooked food, especially sort of slow cooked food is already sort of partially broken down. So it's already like half of the work's done done for your digestive system already. Um, so those were sort of like, I was like, hmm, like fatigue. There's, And then the other thing is if she's eating something that she has a sensitivity to, fatigue fairly quickly can be a sign of, of food sensitivity. So those are sort of the things I was like, yeah, there's some other things to consider here though. And I know that's not like really the, that's not Christy's question or the, or the topic of the show, but I felt like um, given that, those types of questions often end up being combined because mm. people will feel like a green juice is a really great option given that. It's like, oh, we should follow that tangent slightly. Totally. I appreciate that. And I know Abby does as well. I think it's a good point. Another thing, I just want to give her kudos because she f- like discovered FODMAPs on her own and eliminated them and is doing much better and um, has been doing collagen every day. And so just high five to my sister. Um, I'm, I'm also, on. don't leave me hanging. I'm also doing one there. You're doing another. So you get a high <laughs> 10, Abby, high I, 10. There we go. <laughs> as, as you listeners probably know this more than anything, like we can talk to thousands of you all and Yet our family. <laughs> I, I, yeah. My favorite idiom is you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. I, I mean, I, what I, I basically, my philosophy is I am a resource for when my family's ready and I will help them out as much as they need, but there's no amount of, Hey, did you knows my family's just going to roll their eyes. I mean, I've got like, my my mom eats really well. My mother-in-law actually had like recently just decided to switch to gluten-free bread because why not? Like <laughs> that was the only gluten she was consuming. I was like, well, you're gluten-free now. And she's like, oh yeah, I guess I am. And and so I certainly have family members who are, are doing great, but I also have family members who um, they just, they, they put on the earmuffs and they don't want to know. And there's, there's nothing that I can do. And I, I know that our listeners probably have had this similar experience with their family members that they're like, Hey, this really fixed me. And we have the same issue and it's probably related to the same things. And can you, you know, why don't you try it? And they're like, absolutely not in a place to want to make diet changes. And so just so you guys know, it happens to us too. All right. We can actually get back on track. <laughs> get back on track. Uh, tangent off. So, uh, the next aspect of the like soups versus smoothies versus I mean we're, we're I think we've just thrown out green juices now right so we're really just looking at soups versus smoothies 
is the, the other aspect is not just whether they're hot or cold, but the fact that uh, when you make a soup, you're cooking the ingredients as opposed to a smoothie. The ingredients are typically raw unless you're adding something like broth, right? So that would be a cooked ingredient. But chances are the lettuce or the kale or the mango that's going into that smoothie is going to be raw. And that changes how uh, easy those nutrients are to absorb. And it also changes how they impact the gut microbiome. And we talked about this back in episode 304, where we talked about raw versus cooked food. And we sort of talked about how um, when you cook food, and it doesn't matter if it's carbohydrates or proteins or fat, that we actually, it's much more digestible and we get more energy out of that food. And again, we kind of get into the, you know, we're actually absorbing more nutrients from cooked food. So that's really important from a nutrient absorption perspective. Um, you can hack this a little bit by, say, eating more raw vegetables or sashimi. Um, you're going to absorb fewer calories. It'll still be very satiating. So there are ways that you can use this information to aid weight loss, for example. But generally, we're absorbing more nutrients from cooked food. And that probably was actually something that was really, really important in human evolution. There's a lot of evolutionary biologists who think that using fire to cook was one of was basically the thing that made humans human because it allowed us to get a lot more energy from our food, which helped to propel um, our the development or the evolution of our, our big brains because our brains use actually 25% of our calories every day. It's just our tiny little brains inside our heads. That's, that's a small tangent. So uh, so going back to summarizing the, the um, episode 304, what was really interesting to me at the time was I had just started reading some papers looking at how raw fiber versus cooked fiber actually differentially affect the gut microbiome. And it turns out that if you take the same fiber type and you heat treat it, which basically means cook it versus not, that you actually support different species of bacteria. And, you know, there's there's some interesting, well, you know, if it's raw, you'll get more lactobacillus. If it's, uh, you know, cooked, you'll see more uh, of sort of other types of, um, of important bacteria. Um, it's, it's actually not the same for different foods. So as I have gone into this type of research in more depth for my new microbiome book, um, it's actually really interesting because, you can you can sort of show that you know it, more cooked fiber might be say more uh, associated with a lean microbiome phenotype, which is a sort of a distinct collection of bacteria that are associated with leanness versus associated with obesity. But you also see that generally raw fibers have higher prebiotic activity. So, for example, there's been some interesting studies looking at raw almonds versus roasted almonds and shows that when we consume raw almonds, it actually increases levels of bifidobacterium and lactobacillus, these two genera of incredibly important probiotic bacteria. So the argument is not actually for raw or cooked, it's for mixing it up. So we really see that when you take a type of fiber and you cook it, unravels some of the molecular structures and different bacteria like to eat different food. And the way we support a diverse microbiome is by feeding them a diverse collection of foods. And so sometimes cook broccoli, sometimes, uh, and sometimes steam it and sometimes roast it and sometimes have it raw, right? And it really comes to diversity of different types of foods, the more different types of vegetables and fruit we consume, the better, but also preparing them differently and doing right a mix of slightly cooked, very cooked, and raw. And that is what is going to feed the best diversity of species in our guts, which is the number one feature of a healthy gut microbiome is diversity of species. So we talked about that in episode 304. That's my, my, my brief summary now. The other aspect of soups or smoothies, when, so if you talk about a pureed soup, which had the most satiating effect, or a smoothie, which doesn't have that satiating effect, the other aspect that's really interesting is the particle size. So when you put that soup or that smoothie into your high-speed blender, you're breaking those food up 
into smaller pieces than you would if even if you were going to do the like 100 chew rule or whatever it is 33 per side i i don't know what the special magic number of chewings that we need to do before we swallow to have, be perfectly polite but even if you were to chew that food really really thoroughly chances are very good that when you swallow it the chunks would still be bigger than what you get out of a Vitamix or Blendtec. So that actually changes how that food behaves in our digestive tract. So when we have really, really small particle sizes in our food, typically our body doesn't have to work as hard to digest it. So it's one of the reasons why people with inflammatory bowel diseases, for example, do so well on smoothies and pureed soups because it's so much easier on their digestive tract. Uh, so the nutrients are easier to absorb, typically. Uh, and typically, the smaller you um, uh, reduce the particle size, when you're talking about fiber, the more easily it's going to be fermented by our gut bacteria. So it, that's sort of an oversimplification. Again, there's sort of lots of nuance. It doesn't always work out this way. But typically, if you puree a soup or you you make a smoothie with a high-speed blender, you're going to end up with a product that is more readily fermented. Now, as I said, it's not always the case. There were some really interesting studies that looked at uh, carrots. Um, so they were looking at um, carrot fiber and they had these like big clusters and by big, big, I mean like 300 micrometers, which is really, really tiny. Um, but it was basically clusters of some carrot cells. And then they had single cells, single carrot cells, which is kind of weird for me to think of carrot cells, um, or cell fragments. So they, they were either broken up a single cell or little groups of, of carrot cells. And they actually showed that the groups of carrot cells were the most readily fermented by bacteria, which is counterintuitive. If you think that cutting the, the making the particles smaller and smaller makes it easier for bacteria to ferment it because they don't have to work as hard to break it down either. This is the opposite of that. And what they actually showed was that where the carrot cells joined each other was actually like that location, the way that the molecules uh, kind of wrapped together, that that was the most fermentable part of the carrot cell was where the carrot cells joined each other. So basically the sugars that were holding it together was what the bacteria really, really wanted. And so there's been some interesting studies showing that there's definitely some nuance here. But generally, um, our, generally when you break something down, whether that's through pureeing a soup or making a smoothie or just chewing our food really well, typically that means that the fiber is going to be more easily fermented. Now, that sounds like a really great thing, but that's not necessarily the case because most of the fermentation in our digestive tract is actually supposed to take place in the large intestine. So if you make a food too easy to ferment, you're actually, it's going to get fermented by bacteria in the small intestine. That's not going to necessarily lead to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. That depends a lot more on the type of food you're feeding them rather than how you know, how you've processed that food, it means more that there might not be as much left for the large intestine by the time it gets there. And so it makes the case again for mixing it up, having that smoothie, exactly how Christy's doing it, beside some foods that are going to slow down fermentation. Because even when you have that smoothie beside, um, you know, a little bit of protein, a little bit of fat, that still impacts how that Fiber, even though it's broken up into really small particles, it still impacts how it's going to be fermented. So again, it's really an argument for complete meals and mixing it up. And, uh, you know, I think all in all, you can make a very strong argument for including some smoothies and or some pureed soups and or some chunky soups in a varied diet. Like you can really see that there's benefits to those foods, but that we wouldn't want to consume a diet that was just those foods unless we were doing it therapeutically for an ulcerative colitis flare or a Crohn's flare, for example. But I think it's really interesting that you can sort of see this like give and take of benefits to smoothies or pureed soups that go beyond, does this make you full? Are you going to be hungry in an hour? But actually starts looking at, 
nutrient absorption and how it impacts our gut bacteria. And it really makes a case for these are great options in the context of a varied diet. I do love when the science supports what I'm already doing and was going to continue to do anyway. (laughs) Now, hang on, hang on. So if the science said what you're doing is wrong, you would change. Uh, Okay, let me think about this for a minute. I can't imagine a scenario in which the science would tell me that soup is not a good choice. So it's hard for me to say what I would do. However... I feel so much better Mm -hmm. when I do soup and the science has not always been right, right? Sometimes they make mistakes and they come back and they're like, oops, butter's totally fine. Um, Well, hang on there because (laughs) that was, that was like, that wasn't pseudoscience. That was the government listening (laughs) to uh, one. So I don't want to say that science has sides because I don't believe that it does. But it takes a fairly large body of scientific literature before the scientific community can reach consensus. And consensus building, I think, is really important. So when I'm reading scientific literature, I find the contradictory papers really interesting, but I actually look for consensus. And that is maybe a little bit different than other people who are reading science in the alternative health sphere. So there's a lot of people in the alternative health sphere who put a really heavy weight on those papers that are contradictory. I think they're fascinating. I want to understand why they don't show the same as all these other papers. I'm definitely interested in things like institutional bias, right? Funding bias. Um, you know, those, those things I I'm also trying to look at as I'm, as I'm looking at the scientific literature to whole as a whole, but also there's often really simple explanations for why the conditions in one experiment were a little bit different. And that's why it showed a little bit different, of a result, and you can still incorporate that information with that context. Uh, so I think it's really important to look for consensus, to look for that 90% of scientists agree that there is such a thing as uh, climate change. Actually, that's way more than 90%. But you know, that's that's a really good example that people will be familiar with. That you know, the the vast vast majority, and it's like 99.7% of scientists look at the scientific data and agree that the explanation is man-made climate change. So you that doesn't mean that everybody agrees, but that's what the scientific consensus is, right? So also the scientific consensus is uh, that gravity <laughs> attracts objects together. Um, when you get to that level of 100% consensus, right, because all scientists agree that gravity attracts uh, objects with mass together, then it becomes a theory, So it becomes a scientific theory because it's an accepted fact. And this is the progression that scientific research goes through. When Isaac Newton first started postulating gravity, it wasn't a theory yet because he needed to perform experiments and prove that his hypothesis was correct. And then there needed to be more scientists to do more experiments. And then they needed to all agree. And then they needed to realize that there is, you know, anything that would show otherwise is explained by some other phenomenon like electromagnetism. Therefore, this now reaches the like highest level of theory, which equals the, that word means scientific fact. So I love looking at the nuance in science. I think it's really interesting, I, but I really highly value scientific consensus. So when you look at how poor butter has been treated over the last hundred and twenty <laughs> years, I feel really bad for butter because did you know in the basic seven uh, food groups, which I think was released in like nineteen sixteen, butter was its own food group. It was a whole food group, just butter, based on its vitamin A content. Well, not just that, but you have to think back to that time. They didn't have so many fat alternatives, right? Like they didn't right. have the technology to but make canola oil. Lard didn't share a group with butter. Butter had its own group. They had lard. They had tallow. They had olive oil. Butter got its own group. They were trying to – the Basic 7 was the first – this is, again, a whole tangent. The Basic 7 was the, the very first nutritional guidelines released by the USDA, and it was an attempt at dividing food based on the nutrients they contain – back when there was only like a handful of vitamins and minerals that had actually been identified as being necessary for human health. So they didn't even like know about all the B vitamins yet. And so they had like 
cabbage and tomatoes and like citrus fruit in one group because they knew those were all foods that were high in vitamin C. And then like other veg, there was like three different groups that were vegetables. And butter got its own group because it was known as being a, a good source of vitamin A, but like they didn't know yet that liver had vitamin A, so liver didn't share its, its group. So it was like a really great idea, but nutritional sciences wasn't um, advanced enough to like fill out the idea. And actually, this is one thing that I, I really think nutritional guidelines would be well served by going back to that original idea of trying to create food groups based on the nutrients the foods contain. Like that, I think, is a really solid idea but it got dropped because it was too confusing. It was also the days before the internet. So that also changes communication. But so butter went from that, its own food group in 1916, all the way to like the demonized cardiovascular disease food in the 1970s. But that transition, you know, it wasn't scientific consensus that said butter is terrible. There were plenty of scientists who believed that um, saturated fat had nothing to do with cardiovascular disease and thought that it was related to sugars, which we now know is much closer to the truth. So um, that was more of a how a certain – if certain types of science are being read with more weight than deserved within the context of the entire field, how you can – go down the path towards misleaded or misguided guidelines by not looking for that scientific consensus. I think I just dropped the mic right there. It was really helpful tangent, but I feel like I've just opened Pandora's box with putting <laughs> you in like way too many soapboxes tonight. Mm, a little bit. So... Are you dropping the mic or are we going to wrap up? I could go on <laughs> about scientific research and consensus and how how you um, read research, how you interpret contradictory research and how you develop policy on the government level based on scientific research for about another three podcasts. Um, but I, I kind of feel like I feel like we should wrap it up. Okay. Well, what I've learned is that I'm going to keep eating soup. <laughs> and that smoothies would be okay too. And which is, I just want to be clear. I did actually tell my sister, and this was in regards to juice. This is not even regarding smoothies, which we've already established how you feel about juice. But I was like, mm. honestly, if you love a green juice, like have some sometimes. Like when I sure. travel, I get a green juice because it's a great way to get in a lot of micronutrients that I'm not going to get otherwise. And it's a simple, quick thing that I can grab at a market of some kind, right? Yeah. And so I'm like, if you... If you love a green juice and how it makes you feel, like more power to you. And how Christy's approaching it, like with some fat and protein, um, the more fiber you add to that with a smoothie, the better. Um, but what concerns me is when people do like a month of yeah. juicing or a month of smoothies. And that's like the only thing you're eating. Or so, the only vegetables they consume yes. is their green juice. And they count that as their vegetable servings. So yeah. that's why I love that you covered like the the gut micro part, microbiome part of it. Because I think talking about how that ha can have long-term effects on your health from a gut perspective is so important for people to understand. And what it's also showing is that if you get that variety, then it's not going to be a big deal if you sometimes have a juice and that's mm -hmm. the way that you're getting your vegetables, right? Because the rest of the time you're introducing all different kinds of vegetables in a variety with fiber, cold, hot, all this kind of stuff, your body is going to be balanced and know how to handle it. So it's just like the reason... I introduced this idea of souping in 2018 was because I, it was almost a joke, not almost, it was poking fun at the idea of juicing every single day for a month, right? And like that concerns me when I think back to being a, a kid and my mom went on this like 
crazy diet, which she still to this day swears is where her health really started to spiral. And I believe her because it was terrifying. And she bought a juicer and she could only have vegetable and fruit juice on some days. And on other days she was supposed to eat I don't know why what this diet book was, was hot dogs, but exactly, (laughs) but we were vegetarians. And so she ate not dogs and that was it. Those were the only things that she ate. And I remember her like making these juices and all of the fiber going on the side of the thing and throwing it away and just thinking to myself like, well, that can't be right. Like that's the whole food form of that. Like you're supposed to eat that. Right. Um, And I think... There there are a lot of claims being made about the health benefits of juicing that frustrate me because they don't talk about the sugar and they don't talk about um, how that carbohydrate is hitting you. And I think every single scientific paper you've ever talked about on this show talks about the benefits of vegetables, period, right? Like this is a vegetable-centered show, so let's just put it to the forefront Every single scientific reference you've ever found has always supported the idea that vegetables improve our health. And so why mess with something that shows so many health benefits, right? Like we don't know what is happening to something when we remove a part of it in terms of the full effect that it could have on us. Like we know that there could be all of these things that we've talked about, but there could also be more impact that we're not yet aware of when we remove the substance of something like the fiber in a vegetable. So to me, I'm like, if you know that a vegetable is good for you and you're, you can make a whole food smoothie or you can make a soup, why not do that instead of juicing it and only eating part of the food? Like it just, I don't know, just blows my mind. I I don't understand where it came from or why it came, like why someone thought that was a good idea like there's just no part of it that makes sense to me that's I my am, tangent since you got a couple i am going to start googling the like hot dog wiener <laughs> and juice I'll, I'll, diet i'll text my mom and ask her if she remembers like, what that was is that that's it was that's... after that that like her health just but she lost well like yeah. 40 pounds in a couple of weeks like it was just it was like it was a hot mess yeah yeah, and I I mean, you and I have both been there where we equate weight loss to health because we have this like I mean, I think as a society we have this simplistic view of health that if you're thin and you fit into size 4 jeans then you're healthy and if you're anything but that then you're not healthy. And meanwhile, we've talked about it on the show a million times that that's actually not the best metric of health. Um but yeah, I could totally see how you would stick with something if you were losing weight that fast, even if you were seeing these other symptoms crop up, at least for a while. Yeah. And you know, it takes a while for those negative things to hit you because the nutrient deficiency isn't something that you feel on day two, right? So all of that, by the time she was at her 30-day mark with with this thing is when she was wrapping it up is when everything started to spiral. And I think that that is often what happens with some of the um, fad diets, for lack of a better word, than we've talked about here on the show before, right? Like this this idea of um, altering whole foods to suit a particular need for dot, 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 we're not quite sure, um, right? Like there's there's a lot of different things happening out there that, you know, my number one question is always like, well, why? Like why, why would you remove X, Y, or Z? And there can be a case made for why someone would, you know, have uh, an intolerance to nightshades. There can be a case made for why someone might not properly digest legumes. There can be a case made for different kinds of things, but then there can also be a case um, made for why, why would you remove the fiber? Like, I just, I'm like, what's wrong with fiber? <laughs> so, okay. Fiber's really good. There's yeah. my tangent. Um, thank you listeners once again for being here and tolerating um, what I believe might have been four tangents. <laughs> um, Definitely put, a couple. Yeah. Put that one on the, on the record top 
top list for us. Um, but we we hope you're having a wonderful January and that our topics this month have inspired you to make sustainable, health-minded choices. I think that was one of the big things that we talked about as you approach New Year's, right, is, is you, you want to develop healthy habits that will last the test of time and make you feel good about yourself and not resentful or full of guilt if you don't accomplish them and all that kind of stuff. So I'm hoping that as we've tackled some of these topics this month that you're feeling confident in your health and the choices that you're making. And just remember, we're here for you. You can always listen back to 334 (laughs) other episodes. I don't know why you do that, but you can. And if you want to talk to us in the here and now, we're always available through our blog and our social media. And we love it when you chime in and um, reach out to us through those formats. So thank you so much for being here and listening. And Sarah... I'm ready. Hit him. Ah, we'll We'll be be back back. next week. (laughs) I thought you were going to say it and I was going to add, as As always. always. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. You lost me, but I'm, it's fine. I was just grabbing a can of LaCroix (laughs) and I thought I knew where it was, but then the box wasn't open. I had to open the box and I didn't turn on the light. And I was like, oh, this is, and the box was like the opposite orientation of the way I thought it was. I was like basically just ripping at cardboard. Like, can I just tell you my family's favorite Christmas gift that we didn't realize was even a Christmas gift. I purchased new soda stream bottles. We had a soda stream and when we moved, like all of our bottles were damaged. If you put them in the dishwasher, they get damaged or we lost Mm -hmm. the lid or like whatever, right? And so we threw them out when we moved and we put the soda stream in the closet. And we were buying so many LaCroix that I was like, this is insane. We're trying to have a no-spend January. And I'm like, LaCroix is not a necessity. (laughs) Like I'm tired of going to Costco for LaCroix. And so we just got new soda stream bottles. And the kids are drinking it like it's water, but good mm-hmm. water and not asking for LaCroix all the time. And it's amazing. Like they're responsible for their own bottles and I'm not finding like empty cans all over the house. It's nice. It's amazing. That's cheaper than the Costco cases I was buying. Let me just tell you. For sure. <laughs> we figured when we first did the math, we figured it would save um, like $60 a month. <laughs> in sparkling water and i was like wait i spend that much in sparkling water every month (laughs) we were we totaled it up and we're like yeah but i don't i don't like flat water i think water should have bubbles it's just a thing i have seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery join june parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.